Hey there, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is a Freakonomics Radio Extra, our full interview with Dominique Foxworth, who appeared in bits and pieces in our Hidden Side of Sports series. I've known Foxworth for a while now. He's one of the most thoughtful athletes I've ever encountered. But this conversation surpassed my already high expectations, not just for his thoughtfulness, but his willingness to wrestle with contradiction and his hardcore candor. As you'll hear in this episode, Foxworth was an NFL player for several years, then served as president of the NFL Players Union, and after getting an MBA from Harvard, was the COO of the NBA Players Union. It turns out he didn't like that job too much. You'll hear why. As our conversation begins, Foxworth is talking about his belief that the professional sports players unions should be dissolved. I asked why. Yeah, I think that where we are with um, with professional athletes and how big a business it's gotten and how well they are compensated, I think, is... Uh, is a product of sacrifices made by players coming up. And many players lost uh, long seasons, were blackballed out of the league, and, and had their careers really uh, torn apart by the their ambitions of free agency and pensions and all those things. And they never really got to fully uh, reap the benefits from that. And I think back in those days, the the unions, the player unions were a lot like what we think of as traditional labor unions. But I think we've gotten to a point now where it's not like that. And with the the length of a player's career and how much money they could stand to make in a season, it's really not in their best interests, like mathematically, logically, if you go through the numbers, it's not in their best interest to actually withstand a lockout or to initiate a strike. They will not make that money back. Like it's just physically impossible the reason why they would do it is uh to further the cause i guess for players in the future but since you can't kind of hand your position down to uh your son or daughter then it really doesn't seem to make sense so um for me i can use me as an example i sacrificed from the time i was i don't know uh probably in high school is when i started to uh, forego other opportunities or other decisions to focus more on football. And then I'm in college and I wanted to be a computer. I, I did computer graphics and some computer science in high school. And then in college, I wanted to be a cons- computer science major at um, University of Maryland. And my academic advisor was like, mm, though that that course load is going to make it very difficult for you to make it to our practices, their labs and blah, 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 blah. So I was like, no, not going to do that during the summers when there's so in, so instead you did, was it American studies? Yeah, I did American you studies, made, which I and journalism, right? And journalism, which just shows how easy what I do is that you could do <laughs> it and another major while playing football. But uh, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, um, I enjoyed those and it was, it was good, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And in the summers when, when people were getting internships or whatever, I was working out and getting ready for football. And I say all that to say, once I got to the league, then I got drafted and I was in the third round. So that's, it's money. It's good money, but it's not life changing money. It doesn't, uh, and it, it doesn't kind of make up for all the things that you have given up through the course of your life. And then I come up on free agency and that's when I got a a pretty nice deal. I I can't, yeah, I can't imagine if somebody was like, no, you got to sit out right now. 
And then when you think about it, it's it's competition, obviously, because you are competing in this lockout or or strike with the owners, whereas it does make sense for them to withstand a lockout because they own their teams into perpetuity. So if they if they win a lockout for uh, a tenth of a percentage point or even a whole percentage point of revenue split, that is something that will maybe $3 million of franchise for this season. And it'll go up as things grow and it goes on and on and on. So if you are in the, the kind of old fashioned mindset of labor strikes is the only way to get anything, you are players in all sports are severely mismatched. It's interesting to hear you say, though, that that would be the reason to maybe uh, not have players unions because, um, you know, a, a lockout or strike, I guess, the lock, lockout is what the owners do, a strike is what the players can do. A strike, even the strike threat is rarely, is pretty rare, like once every whatever, five to ten years, depending on when a given union's collective bargaining agreement is up, right? So so you, I know, you were playing football in the NFL when the lockout happened, mm-hmm. it was like 2011 or 12, it must have been, somewhere in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the NFL Players Association was basically telling you guys, uh, put away as much money as you can and right. maybe you might want to switch to, you know, regular gas from unleaded, all this stuff. Can <laughs> right. you just talk about that experience? Yeah, I was um, heavily involved in the negotiations, so I remember that. And I remember trying to get all the players ready, but the fact of the matter is, the players are severely outmatched if you're going to try to match up with money with the owners. Like, we're not going to be able to outlast uh, how long they can go without making money. As far as influence on the media, they have that also. And so the the kind of, kind of trying to fight them in that traditional way, you're destined for failure, it would seem. So the point of decertification is as long as we have a union, we have to agree over collective bargaining. Once you dissolve the union, then you expose the league to um, antitrust law which, frankly, the NFL um, existed for several years very um, lucratively for the players without a union. And the league was exposed to antitrust law. That's what um, precipitated free agency in football. And the only reason why the NFL Players Association was reconstituted was because the NFL made it a stipulation uh, of the settlement. Like, you must reform a union to allow us to operate as a legal cartel slash monopoly. And so that's the only reason why we exist, (laughs) frankly. And I was the president of the union. I was the COO of the NBA Players Union for uh, a time. And I recognize the union provides a great deal of value. But I think, it, frankly, that protection is more value to the leagues than it is to the players. So, like, in that whatever job anyone has in your job, they can't institute a salary cap. Like, they, they can't um, do a draft and say, like, hey, all the doctors that graduate this year – um, we're going to draft you to and tell you where you go. Like you have some say in those things because they are forced to abide by the regular laws that everyone else abides by. So regular labor laws, yeah, not regular union labor provisions. Laws. Wow. Exactly. So, so how would you have the scenario look? I mean, every league's different, but um, obviously the college football is this weird, unpaid, high risk. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a whole other financial ecosystem. Why don't we just start with talking about how NCAA football works as a feeder system for the NFL and what that does for or to the athletes? I think we're at a point now where most people kind of understand that college sports is professional sports and 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 
in select cases. So, like, obviously, the vast majority of college sports are not professional sports. But the two kind of big money sports in the Power Five conferences, they generate a substantial amount of revenue. And that revenue um, goes to lots of people who are not the labor. So it goes to supporting other sports. It goes to building bigger and better facilities. It goes to paying college presidents and coaches and funding the NCAA. Like it goes a lot of different places, but it doesn't go to, to the people who are the labor on the field. And I think another thing that complicates that it it would be, it would be a problem if that was the end of the story and every player then went on to have NFL careers, it would be unfair, but, Eh, whatever. Like, it's, you're not going to lose any sleep for those guys. But the vast majority of the guys, and I have several teammates who, because it is not considered work, they're not privy to workers' compensation. They're not privy to extended health care. So I have a few teammates who have torn ACLs, separated shoulders, um, torn labrums and hips and shoulders, lots of injuries that uh, one of my best friends in college, uh, I think it was a few years ago, his doctor told him that he was going to have to have both of his knees replaced by the time he was 50. <laughs> and he didn't play professional sports. He had um, three knee surgeries while in college. And there's nothing that any college football team or or governing body is going to do for him in that case. And I, that to me is is tragic that a lot of people benefited from that. And again, he had aspirations to play professional football. So while he was in college, he made all of the decisions that people who have those aspirations do where you don't necessarily go after the major that you are most interested in or the major that's going to lead to a career. You go after a major that's going to allow you to focus on on what's most important, which is sports, unfortunately. And I know many people would say that maybe that shouldn't be so important, but it's hard when that carrot's out there. It's hard to convince somebody to to try to balance and try to do both things well when it's like, no. I need to do as well as I can at this because this is like a life changing opportunity, like not just your life, but a generational uh, shifting opportunity. And you have a chance at it and someone's going to tell you, no, how about you don't go do that summer workout that's going to get you closer to it? How about you take an internship or something? Or how about you do take that tougher major? You're going to miss a few practices. The coaches may not start you uh, and it'll stunt your development like that just doesn't make sense. So. The old-fashioned argument for why this was okay and why it was acceptable was that, well, you know, this is like uh, what economists call a tournament model, right? Whenever you got a lot of people competing for like the top of the pyramid, whether it's show business or sports or whatever, you know, the bottom of the pyramid, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people there willing to do whatever it takes for practically no money. It's this kind of weird unpaid apprenticeship. And I guess some people accept that as okay. Others don't. But I think what strikes me that's especially uh, noteworthy about sports is the degree and magnitude of sacrifice, physical and otherwise, is larger, I would argue, than uh, trying to become an actor, trying to become a writer try, w- and whatnot. So can you just talk about that component of it a little bit more and what you think would be a better solution? I think bringing up the, the tournament model is, is interesting. Because I could understand how some people would look at that and say that it fits here and that's why this is fair. But I think as a country, we've decided that that wasn't fair a long time ago. Like that's not there are plenty of jobs where that's true, like just about every job. It's like 
uh, the barista at Starbucks. Like there are plenty of people out there who are capable of being baristas and you could probably allow Starbucks to, to, um, pit them against each other and negotiate down, 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 down. But that's not the case. Like we've instituted, um, minimum wages and we've instituted lots of other laws to protect American people or American workers from, uh, these type of capitalistic urges run amok. And the, the thing that's frustrating to me is we've instituted rules in professional sports that happen to take place on college campuses. We instituted rules that are to the advantages of the institutions, but we are not interested in instituting any rules that are, that are things that we accept as just kind of like facts and fair, like there you'll, you'll be hard pressed to find anyone in our society. That's like, no, let's eliminate the minimum wage and, uh, and allow this, this tournament um, model to, to run amok for, for um, low wage workers. Right. Well, the other argument though, in colleges is, and again, this may be a, a purely specious argument from your perspective, maybe partially specious, but the other argument is, wait a minute, free education, four years of college. What's that worth? Right. So there's two Major issues that jump out for me from the education, the players are brought to the school because of their athletic prowess. There are many players who I've been around and I know that were not prepared to benefit. So what they're receiving is uh, steps 10, 11, and 12 when what they're building on is steps one, two, and three, if that makes any sense. So that education, frankly, is worthless to them. They're then there um, trying to get eligible. And then there's the other like people who show up who are prepared, like me and like other people that then make all these decisions because you're not you're not even getting the same education as the people around you because you have to travel on Thursdays and Fridays and you are not allowed to do certain majors because uh, they conflict with your schedule. And three times a week during uh, the winter session or the, the spring session, you have to go to 5 a.m. workouts and and that changes your academic experience. Like it's, it's, there are all these things that are mandatory because your scholarship is year to year and you don't have any power to negotiate with your coach, like, and say things like, I, I want to take this, so I'm not going to be able to go there. Like, that's just not a thing that, that is available. So the, the education that they're receiving is not the education that people think it is. Right. And so this is a, a gigantic question and it's a it's a it's such a big industry already that there's obviously no easy, quick solution that would satisfy even close to everybody. But what kind of solution or solutions do you think are most viable that would, let's say, keep big time college sports intact in a way that the market would need them to be intact? In other words, there's massive audiences out there that really like it. Um but all those dollars, as you've noted, don't flow to the people who actually produce the labor. So what would be a way to um, equilibrate that a little bit or make more people less unhappy, at least? The thing that frustrates me about that conversation is it's always you're always asked to to add something to change a rule to fix it. Whereas I feel like we should blow it up altogether and follow, frankly, the model that this country has followed up until now is that you you strive for a free market and then you institute rules to uh, make it fairer. So I think that's where we should go. Like, let's not try to add a rule or, or provide a stipend for players. No, let the, let the schools go after these players the same way anyone else would go after any other employee. 
And then if we notice that there are issues along the way, then we can add rules to to fix those. I I think trying to inch our way back is not the way to to get to the fairest possible system. If you were going to blow up the system, would you even connect uh, that kind of pre-professional uh, sports league, meaning college? Would you even connect that to universities at all? Or was that an accident of history that is the root of the problem, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an accident of history. Like, I, I know you and, and your son are, are big soccer or, or uh, <laughs> yeah. footy fans like that. You can call it soccer. That's all right. It's okay. <laughs> that's, that's, not the, um, that's not the model that they follow. It's not, I mean, this is a purely American model. Uh, this um, college athletics being a feeder system to professional athletics. And it's probably, not probably, it, it is more unnatural, I would think, than, than uh, these other systems. So I understand that it is the way that our country developed. And I, I mean, I understand the allure of being connected to a college that you went to or a college that you grew up around. And I'm not saying that you, do, that you have to dissolve that all altogether. You can allow them to, I mean, Many of those, obviously, they are um, nonprofit organizations, but they understand how to exist in a for-profit environment. Like they do, go after different professors and uh, and they negotiate over those terms. Like this is something that they are accustomed to. They negotiate with coaches. Like they don't even have to go that far with their coaches and assistant coaches. Like they understand how the free market works. And so Jimbo Fisher is a good example of it. Of it, he was uh, the coach at Florida State. He brought him a national championship, and then Texas A and M offered him a better situation, and he up and left. And then Florida State went and got Willie Taggart from Oregon. Like th- this is not something. While they want to pretend <laughs> that it is a completely pure system, like they know how this works. And every other year, Alabama has to pay. Uh, Nick Saban a little bit more to to keep him at the top of the list. Like this is not something that that is brand new to them. I don't see why it's any different from from going into a kid's uh, living room and and saying, "Well, we want you to come here. We can offer you X, Y, and Z." But it just I think it makes people feel uncomfortable. But there's nothing wrong with it. So it's interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm probably am, but it seems like there's a weird paradox here. You're calling for the decertification or the blowing up of professional sports players unions because you feel like they don't really work well and work in the interest of the athletes who need to kind of make their, make their money now careers being so short, but it sounds like college athletes have zero collective representation and that a union for them might actually do some good. Or do you think that's not, a solution. No, I think that they've they've tried and failed. Um Ramogi Huma at one point was um leading that effort and it hasn't worked. But I do think that that them having a seat at the table with some leverage would be helpful because anytime you have and this is what's happened for in college sports for a long time now is you have a bunch of people in a room kind of setting up the parameters of a, of the game, but there's one group. There's only one group that's not allowed in that room. And of course, that like it's just human nature. That group is going to be the group that is perpetually slighted. So I think that college athletes are in a different space than professional athletes. So um, having a union, if the college athletes could organize to the point where they would just stop showing up like to, to games, and that's an impossible thing to ask them because, again, it goes back to this, like, this is my one chance. But if they were able to at least threaten that, 
I think that's how they could get some significant change. So given the history and the dollars and the emotions that are attached to college sports overall, how likely do you see any kind of substantial evolution or change even in the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that the opinion in public is shifting towards wanting athletes to be uh, fairly compensated. But I don't know that they're going to stop watching. So I don't know where the pressure comes from, honestly. I think we're already at a majority of society. I think it's different across age and, and racial demographics. But there will come a point, particularly as um, some young people get older, where all adults believe and accept that college athletes should be paid. But this ties in a bit to the union conversation. What is going to force them to act in the same way that um, a lockout or a strike is not necessarily going to force owners to act in the same way that I think uh, antitrust or antitrust exposure would force them to act. I think this is true here, too. It's like I do think if the players, if uh, collegiate athletes just stop showing up to to big-time games and tournaments. That would force them to act. But I don't see them doing it because they only are only have four years of eligibility, which means they only have four years to, to show professional teams that they're, that they're good enough to play. So it's kind of, again, not in their interest to do that. The only other thing is if the, if the public stopped watching because of it, and I don't necessarily see that happening. So I'm not sure how we get to this point. I think the other thing that's tricky is that the guys – with the least incentive to change it are the ones for whom the system works, which is to say the stars in the system, right? If you're, if you really think that, that being a college athlete, whether in basketball for one year or football for three or four years, that you are going to have a professional career, you don't want to rock the boat because you're there now. So Mm -hmm. I don't see how they would have an incentive to even pretend to want to change. Do you? Yeah. I mean, I think these, you linking these two are, is very important because it's, pretty accurate like it isn't in their best interest those guys who are on the doorsteps of having professional careers it's not really in their best interest to 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 stop this now and i think uh, you also bring into account the people who are benefiting most from it who are not on the field like there's really no benefit to uh the coaches who because coaches salaries are inflated because they have extra money because they are not sending it to the players and the rest of the the teams who um, are funded by money generated by football and basketball. There's no incentive there. There's just the athletes who don't have much power. It is interesting that in the NFL, a coach might make a quarter or maybe even a tenth of what his top star player is making, right? Right. But in college, you make (laughs) infinitely more because, you know, they're all getting zero. If I were to think of someone who could try to get in there and navigate diplomatically and also bust skulls and who knows what they're talking about. Uh, I think you're the guy, actually, because (laughs) first of all, you've been a professional football player. You were also president of the players union in the NFL. But then you're the only person I know of at all. And correct me if I'm wrong. The only person I know of who's ever been associated with the NFL and the NBA is the chief operating officer of the NBA Players Union, correct? Right. So you've got the two major college sports. You've got those credentials, right? Um, you also happen to have an MBA from Harvard, yes? That's a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> so 
Am I wrong to think that you sometimes do think about being the person to try to go downstream from pro sports and into college and say, hey, uh, if you actually want to treat people properly, the place to do it is here. And yes, we do need to blow up the system. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honestly, and maybe that's like uh, yelling about unfairness from the sidelines and not necessarily getting involved. Maybe that's... uh, the wrong way to go about it. But I don't know. I think it's a, I agree with you. It's not complicated, but I do think it's complex. And I think that can be kind of intimidating. And I don't know the way. And and you, you brought up business school. One of the things we, uh, in the entrepreneurship classes that I took there, talk a lot about how little uh, people know about what their business is going to become and how many times it pivots and changes and how not knowing what you're going to do is okay. It's like you kind of bet on on the person more so than the idea. You bet that the person will figure it out. Like, I don't have any clue, honestly, <laughs> where to start with this. And I think that's more intimidating. I would feel like I feel pretty close to like 85% confident about the idea that unions should decertify in professional sports because I fully understand that. I've been through this and I know that if they operate as trade associations, they can still provide a lot of the services to players that players get from the union and it doesn't really hurt them. The scary part is maybe you no longer have a league minimum for players and that creates the tournament thing that you were talking about. Like I understand the ins and outs. Like I understand that in a way that I don't understand the landscape of of college sports and yeah i guess i just look at it as a thought experiment if if you could take someone that doesn't know anything about sports at all and say hey what if we have the system where um workers are going to perform a set of tasks um you know and let's say 50 hours a week for four years at this place and then they're going to perform essentially the same set of tasks um in a different place um, and in each case, you know, 80,000 people come and watch them and millions more watch them on TV. But in one case, they get paid, let's say, an average salary of whatever, two, three million dollars a year. And the other, they get paid zero. And they're the same people. <laughs> um, how in what universe does that make any sense? That's, you know, that's kind of the thought experiment that I think would lead to a, a reassessment yeah. that, you know. That's the thing is like uh, another thing that I've come to learn in professional life is that logic is uh, useless <laughs> in some cases. So like the, the thought experiment that you just took me through is a wonderful one that proves the example, but people don't act based on thought experience. They act in, in um, reaction to incentives and pressure and those sorts of things. So I think some a couple of things that we talked about, and I think creating another place, creating real competition, because the fact that they are a monopsony now, meaning that they can, that that's the only place you can go. That exists in part because of the unions, both professional football and basketball. So basketball forces the players to be one year removed from from high school before they can enter the league, which forces them to then find an alternative. Maybe they can go overseas, but if they want to stay in America, they have to play college basketball. Football is three years removed, and there is no uh, real viable professional football leagues elsewhere. So you kind of have to go to to college. I think what the NBA is doing now with um, the D league and they've started 
something called the Junior NBA. It's like I think they're kind of building that infrastructure, whether intentionally or not. They're certainly building an infrastructure to create uh, academy system that is an alternative to college athletics. And I know they've discussed the idea, and they probably are going to remove the one-and-done rule in the next CBA. And I think that some players will start going straight into these NBA academies or into these D-League teams rather than going to college, and that might change the system. In football, I don't think they that there is much hope to change that anytime soon. I guess maybe if basketball changes, then football has to change. Well, what's to stop me? Let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I say, you know, the NFL Players Association, which is a sworn enemy of the NFL in many cases, in many instances, but they're also colluding with them to basically get free labor for three or four years from all these athletes. What's to stop me from saying, well, why don't I uh, work up an alternative and I will create some kind of league that is pre-professional that would satisfy the, the, the NFL draft rules, I guess. On the other hand, they can change those rules at will and put me out of business on day one, I guess, right? Right. I mean, I, I think they could, but I don't think they would. I think the, the major problem is uh, network effects. You need to have a critical mass of the best players, for for the other best players to come because the guys need to hone their skills and they need their skills to be matched up against other players so that you can know. So, like, I think maybe for basketball it's, it might be a little different because it seems to be that often they pick out those guys early on and they, and they turn out to be really good. But with football, if you get the top 50 players – top 50 um, incoming freshmen to go build a league with you, which I think is would be really hard to do. But if you do that, that's still not even close to enough. <laughs> you need them. And it's, again, basketball, everyone kind of plays the same position. Like everyone blocks, shoots, jumps, uh, plays defense. Football, it's like, oh, so we got to get, it just seems like a really hard thing to do to build a real alternative. Right. Well, let me ask you this. So the alternative to this, like the the purely cutthroat capitalist version is like the academy model that soccer clubs around the world practice, right? And um, and there you've often got kids, very young kids, sometimes really 8, 9, 10, but usually, you know, 11, 12, early teens going into academies and basically becoming sort of unpaid professionals, although not fully unpaid. And so, like, that is an alternative, but A, if you don't make it, uh, into the professional uh, level, which the vast majority, just numbers being what they are, won't, then you have um, a weird, you've been removed from mainstream education and, and whatnot for a long time. Um, but also, like, I look at the flip side, you as an athlete and as a student, like, you may think it would have been better for you to have had the choice between professional sports and a career that was not sports. But on the other hand, you went to college and played sports. They kind of went together. And then even though you say this system is not optimal for anyone and certainly not for you, you graduated from Maryland. You played in the NFL. You had a union position and then in the NBA as well. And then you got a Harvard MBA. So I could look at that and say, man, I'm really glad that Dominique Foxworth was not sent to a football academy at age 13 to become a semi-professional. So... Now, maybe you're just an outlier, but who knows? So, I mean, uh, Jay-Z sold drugs, <laughs> grew up in Marcy Projects to a single mother. Now he is a multi, multi-millionaire 
married to Beyonce, the most amazing talent we have in today. So why don't we set it up so that all young men must sell drugs when they're kids <laughs> and have only their mother and grow up in Marcy Projects in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, like, he had a great talent. And to be honest, like, there's probably a, a great deal of luck. Like, and he'll speak to that in that he happened to not be there when one of his friends got arrested and his friend didn't snitch on him. Like, that is, like, a lot of luck. <laughs> and that, to me, see, and I think the same thing is true for me. Like, I can go through the course of my life and look at all the things that happen that were just happenstance that led me to these positions. And I'm not going to say that it's a model that should be, that should be followed. <laughs> I could just understand that there are occasional outliers, but trying to build around that seems crazy. Let me ask you um, a very narrow, specific question, but I'm just curious what you can tell me, because again, you're one of the few people I know um, uh, and maybe the only person there is who's who's been in both the NFL Players Association, uh, had a position in that union and a position in the NBA Players Union. So the two sports, even though we lump them together a lot, pro football and pro basketball, from a, a labor perspective, they're pretty different, right? So there's 53 on a team in the NFL, just 12 in the NBA. But then additionally... Um, you know, there's visibility. We see the NBA player. We see their faces. NFL, we usually don't. Um, and also the salary, um, average salary is much, much higher in the NBA, in part because there are so many fewer um, players for the money to go around. With all those differences between two sports that we kind of tend to lump in together, what are the differences in uh, either what the union tries to accomplish for those labor forces or any any other related differences? Yeah, I think that the power dynamics are obviously very different between the players and the union and the players in the league and also consequently the union and the league lebron james he is more powerful than anybody in the league any owner any team anybody in the union any player like he has more power and influence over uh, that league than anybody else. There's no one like that in the NFL. So that is is a as as are all things. It is a gift and a curse. There is a silver lining and a cloud that comes with having uh, such a con- concentration of power and influence uh, in any one person. So I think that changes the dynamics. I don't. I think fundamentally the things that the players want. Uh, and the, that the union want to accomplish, they're not very different. Honestly, they're pretty similar in, in what you want to accomplish, but how you go about doing it is very different. So um, obviously I wouldn't speak about anything directly that I experienced while I was at either place, but this is one thing that I noticed it, that while working at the NBA Players Association was – the commissioner and LeBron James or the commissioner and, and Kevin Durant, like they are more peers than, than anybody else. And they have a relationship and they have conversations. That's not something uh, you have to concern yourself with. And frankly, when we were in negotiations, that was, it was nice to be able to, to actually be that liaison when I was with the um, NFL players association, it's like the commissioner and the owners, they did not know how the players felt or what the players thought unless they got it from us. Do you attribute that difference then to the leverage that players have in part because just basketball is different from football, or do you attribute that to some kind of 
either history or philosophy or economic leverage that NFL owners have that is really different from NBA owners? I mean, I think those all play a, a part in it, but I think fundamentally it comes down to value. And I, while I think you brought up that there are fewer players in the NBA and that's part of the reason why the players get paid more. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, LeBron James is more valuable to any single team as a talent or even as a marketing vehicle uh, than anybody in the in the NFL. So I think that that matters. You can go back through history and like what Michael Jordan was able to create was a model and players he built on players before him where the best basketball player <laughs> is something that matters and the the best football player is doesn't matter in that way and yeah i'm i'm not sure that i would also say that the person who's being most taken advantage of honestly in all of this is probably lebron james huh how do you mean the existence of of the max salary in basketball and again, we talk about these relationships and we often just talk about groups as if they're monoliths, like all NBA owners feel like this, all commissioners and people in the league office feel like this, all players feel like this, all unions. It's not true. So I think the rise of the max salary was in part because uh, the NBA owners wanted to, and this was max salary came before my time, but NBA owners wanted to be able to control uh, the salaries, because that's who was driving the salaries up is the best players. Best players drive the salaries up. So NBA owners want to be able to control that. And the uh, middle class of players wanted to make more money. So those guys' interests were aligned in that case. Like, let's cap LeBron James <laughs> or let's cap this guy because that'll, that will take more money out of the system and put allow the owners to put more in their pockets. But in a cap system, if you have a floor, that also force them to give more of it to to us middle guys who aren't really. So what ends up happening is a lot of those guys get more than they frankly are worth. And LeBron James and people like him get a lot less than they deserve. This happened in the NFL too, didn't it? Right. With the, the different um, value attached to draft picks, right? Yeah. It was that year in the CBA. Right. So all of a sudden the top draft pick was probably worth about like a lot, 30 or 40% less than the same person had been a year before. Yeah. I would quibble slightly with the word worth and and say <laughs> right, it was paid. paid. Yeah, because I right. think um, the worth and how much they paid are are, are two different things. But uh, if you had a true and, and the NBA obviously has the NFL has a salary cap and the NBA uh, has luxury taxes and a cap, which kind of creates a de facto cap and Major League Baseball, uh, while it is uncapped they still have instituted a number of rules that uh last time i checked the the lowest percentage of league revenue goes to baseball players while they have these enormous contracts if you put together all the money that's going to players they are lowest of all the three major sports so let me ask you this um let's say someone listening to you says to themselves uh you know i like sports i played a little bit in high school whatever and like I think it's a, an amazing endeavor, right? It, it, it kind of satis scratches some ish, itches that nothing else can. Um, but I also like fairness and, you know, treating people with uh, respect and, and also paying them what they're worth. How do I reconcile that as a, as a fan of professional sports and college sports where you're saying there's all kinds of reasons to be, you know, frustrated, if not mm -hmm. uh, more than that? 
I mean, frankly, you don't. You don't. <laughs> you don't have to. It's a interesting kind of irony in that sports is a place that we consider it very a very controlled environment, and it's as close to a meritocracy as we have. And it is kind of we feel like it is fairness. Like whoever wins on a game on the field is the better team. There, you aren't necessarily, and and it's not obviously it's not true in life. Like uh, the people who win in life are disproportionately people who are from wealthy parents and, and who had certain connections like that's but you look at the field and we convince ourselves that once you step out there it's all fair and it and it feels that way uh that doesn't extend to um to the business of sports and people who are interested in the business of sports i certainly encourage them to learn more and to get involved in this but the business of sports is much more business than it is sports so I understand that there are lots of people who don't care about this and aren't interested in this, and I am not asking them to care or be interested. I just hope that they don't get in with limited information. Like, I I love going to movies, but I don't necessarily want to get into the weeds of all the issues that happen in production. (laughs) Right. So talk for a minute about you as an athlete, as a kid. Um and I'm curious to know what the transition was like when it went from something that you love to do for whatever reasons you love to do it, whether it was pure fun or right. competition or being good, whatever, to the transition to when you realized it was um, something that was going to be a profession and a career and how getting into the business of sport changed your view of it. Yes, I was eight when I was like, I decided I wanted to be a professional football player. Actually, I was younger than that. I remember because we lived, my dad was in the military, so we lived a couple different places. And I remember being in an apartment we lived in in Indianapolis. And I told my father I wanted to be a professional football player. And he told me, uh, I, I don't know if he believed me or not, but I, I suspect that he didn't. But he told me, all right, well, you set a goal. You should do something to get you closer to that goal every day. And I took that to heart. So I did a bunch of push-ups and sit-ups that night until I was um, throwing up. It's like ridiculous. And and then my, my father, I, I assume, tried to teach me about moderation the next day. Like, hey, why don't you take, take some smaller steps? But I was in love with the game in part because of how violent it was, honestly. And like whatever warped sense of masculinity I had at that age that probably has not fully left me was like basketball is for the soft kids. Football is for the men and I want to play football. And I think from, uh, to, to get back to the original question that you asked, I, I don't remember not thinking that I was going to go. It's weird. Like I was young enough then to be naive enough to think, obviously I'm going to play in the NFL. And as I got to an age to realize not everyone plays in the NFL, I also was one of the few kids who colleges wanted to talk to. And so I think around high school, when I I worked from the time when I was old enough to, or I was too old to go to like summer camp, I started to, to work. And that was only two summers before um, colleges started inviting me to football camps. I would go to those football camps and realize like, Oh shit, this is an audition. Like this isn't this isn't camp. This isn't football camp. <laughs> I was um I think I was 13 when I went to Art Monk's like full pad football camp and I didn't get an invitation. I just wanted to go. And I still have the report card that they gave me that said that I maybe could play Division 2 college 
football. And then uh, the next two. How did you feel two, about that? <laughs> I was... Uh, um, heartbroken and defiant at the same time, but yeah, everybody has these those type of stories. But um, what position were you playing at the time? I was playing running back and safety, which probably part of the problem because they did they separate us by age at that point and not by weight, and so I was very small and too small to be a running back. <laughs> but anyway, um, so after that year. Then at 14, I was old enough to work. So I worked the next two or the, yeah, I think I worked for, might have the years off. Might have been 12 at Art Monk and then 13, 14, I worked. But anyway. What kind of work did you do those summers? Um, I worked at a camp for disabled, like a sleepaway camp for disabled children and adults called Camp Greentop the first year, which was a hell of an eye-open experience where you have to feed, bathe, change diapers of adults, chase them when they run off and whatever. So that's that's a whole nother ball of wax. But then the next year I worked at Dragon House Express, the <laughs> Chinese food restaurant in the mall food court. And then the next year I got started getting invited to football camps and and that's when it kind of became it started to become a business. When I showed up and it was like, oh, they're like evaluating me. <laughs> like this is I this is how I can get a scholarship or cannot get a scholarship. Like this is where the dream either continues to go forward or or dies. And and how did that realization affect your performance? Uh, um, I it worked out, so I guess it helped. It, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, were you were you intimidated a little bit, or were you more no. like, oh, now I get it. Now this is my business, and I'm going to win. Yeah, I think I, I do my best to be honest and not paint this picture of like, because I feel like it's easy for me to say, no, then I turned it up another <laughs> level, which can't actually be true for a 15 year old kid who knows that his whole life is like riding on how well he does at Duke football camp or whatever. So um, I'm sure I felt some anxiety and some nervousness, but I I pushed it down, I guess, and I did well enough to 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 get their attention, but it also felt like like it felt like the pressure that I wanted, you know? Uh, like yeah, I yeah, wanted to yeah. be a professional football player. Like I wanted for my my play to matter. And obviously it, it felt like it mattered in my little Pop Warner games whatever. I'd cry when we lost, but like I knew that nobody cared in the world. But then it, those were real stakes, and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is real." Were there other uh, kids from those camps that you remember who also went on to play in the NFL? <sighs> Probably the the one person I remember. I went to Penn State's football camp, and I remember Adam Telefero, who was older than me. Um, he was the big guy on campus at the time, and he was their big uh, recruit. They really wanted him. And I remember like befriending him. He was a few years older than me, befriending him and kind of looking up and looking up to him like, oh, this is cool. Like this big time guy who's like on the cover of all these newspapers is like we're friends. And then he ended up going to Penn State and playing safety, I believe, and was paralyzed. And yeah, that's a whole nother avenue to go down. Yeah. Well, let's let's go down that avenue for a minute. Um, you were relatively injury free um during high school and college. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you would see other guys getting hurt, 
or in an extreme case like like Adam getting paralyzed, um, what's your response to that? How do you react? I mean, I think it goes back to like my warped ideas of masculinity as much as I've gotten older and tried to suppress them. I think at that point it was still there and it probably not probably it still is in me at some point. Hopefully I've stifled some of it now, but it was like, yeah, I play this game and yeah, people get paralyzed. I've been on the field a couple of times where people have been paralyzed. I played in a preseason game in the NFL where a guy died in a locker room afterwards. I was on the field when Kevin Everett was paralyzed. Um, uh, we had practice at, at, at Maryland where a helicopter came to take uh, one player off the field and the coach said, move it down. And we kept doing the drills as the helicopter was taking one of our teammates who couldn't move to the hospital. He ended up being okay, but these are all things that, that happened. And I, I do kind of remember, I think I was 11 years old, Pop Warner, we were playing against this other team that had a really good running back. Uh, we were tackling the running back. I, I hit him in his leg and it was so many people on him. He hit the ground and it popped and he screamed and we all got up and the bone was sticking through his skin and it was broken, obviously. And we all went to the sideline and like we're broken up and we're crying and stuff. And it took a while to get him off the field. And the coach was like, hey, we got to finish the game. And uh, like that always stands out in my mind as like a a uh, a turning point where it was like, this is what you're into and this is what you're going to be confronted with. And yeah. from that point forth, I don't think like I was aware of those things, but it never really bothered me. If anything, it was like a badge of honor. Like, yeah, I know this crazy stuff happens and I go out there and do it anyway because I'm a man or something like that. You go out there and do it and you don't get hurt doing it. Right. But then then you did start to get injured as a, as a pro. Can you talk about your first significant injury there? Yeah, I mean, it was tough. I think from a professional standpoint, more than anything, uh, I was fortunate that it didn't happen a year sooner or or two years sooner. Well, this is tied to the to the money, right? Yeah, Correct? this is yeah, uh, definitely tied to the money. Yeah, so let's walk people through this because a lot of people don't understand how money works in the NFL. You were drafted, uh, I believe, two thousand five third round, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what I'm looking at here, you were paid for that year, including a signing bonus, which was a lot of it, uh, about $660,000. Does that sound about right for year one? Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I guess back then it was a three-year rookie contract. Is that right? Yeah, it was a um, three-year rookie contract with a fourth-year option, I believe. Gotcha. Okay. So it looks like your first three years paid you a total of about one and a half million dollars. So for, you know, most places in the world, that's amazing. Those first few years were in uh, Denver. Yeah, so I, I went through the first three years, and then I was coming up on the contract year, and I played pretty well in Denver, and I knew that I needed to play well in this year because if you don't, then the salary minimum goes up for guys after that point. So then they just go get a younger one, and you and you go on with the rest of your life. So on during week one, we're getting ready for the first week of the season in Denver. They traded me to Atlanta. Atlanta was a terrible football team at that point. It was a year after Vic was gone and they had just drafted a rookie quarterback who no one thought was going to be very good. That was the first time when I considered going to business school. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, who is my wife now, uh, I remember talking to her then like, yeah, this don't look like it's going to work out. 
Like it's a, I'm going to have to think about business school because I got traded on week one. You normally earn your position during training camp. I, I skipped training camp. This team's going to be terrible. I'm not going to play. And then I'll be out of the league. But That year you got paid a little over $900,000, but you must have had a pretty good year because the next year you signed a contract with Baltimore that paid you in year one, $8 million, year two, 9.2, and year three, 4.4. Does that sound about right? Yep. I, um, like it was a four-year, 27, I think, in, um, in, in Baltimore. And and then uh, the first year I... I struggled at the beginning of the season, but I was playing really well towards the end of the season. And Baltimore is a city I grew up in, so it was kind of cool. And 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 then we we have like Super Bowl aspirations, and I'm playing well coming into the next season. And I tore my ACL on the first day of training camp, and I was never the same. So that was mm. it. Was kind of the it felt like. My career, like with all the uncertainty and the, frankly, fear that I felt going into year four in Atlanta, like I was the most confident that I'd ever been. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like I'm, I am a Baltimore guy back in Baltimore playing well, Super Bowl contender. Like we're going to win the Super Bowl. I'm going to have a great season. I'm going to go to the Pro Bowl. Like this is, I'm playing as well as I ever have. People are starting to recognize that I'm good and everything is like starting to fall into place. And then the ACL pops. I mean, frankly, that's what led me to um, take on more leadership in the Players Association and led me to be involved in the negotiations, which then is what I used, frankly, was the big piece that got me into business school because I didn't have the grades or the background to get into business school, but no one has experience like that who's going to business school. (laughs) So that's what, frankly, got me into Harvard Business School. So like it, it still turned out to be a good story, but at the time it was... I don't know. I don't, uh, I obviously I would not say that it was a depression by any stretch, but I do remember, um, my wife and I think she was still my girlfriend then, um, telling me like, go get a haircut because like I was just sitting around the house, uh, going to rehab twice a day and coming home and sitting in front of the TV, like, man, just no shaving, no nothing. What got you out of that? Um, I think it's the the opportunity to do to be involved in the CBA stuff. It's like it it gave me a purpose. Like um, I think it's lucky uh, you were near DC. Did that matter? Yeah, that absolutely mattered. That absolutely helped. And I'm lucky that um, I'd already had relationships there, and I was involved, and I was already in a leadership role. But I I was given so much more time because of it. So that four year contract you signed with. Baltimore in 2009. It was a four-year, $27.2 million contract. How much of that did you actually collect? All of it. You did. How did, how did you have it guaranteed, even though you didn't end up playing out the whole contract? You were Yeah, so I was on the team for three years, so I got those three years, and then the fourth year, I got um, I had taken out an insurance policy, so I got the rest of it there. So, I mean, that's why I said earlier I was fortunate that... Um, that the knee injury happened after I signed that deal because it would have happened when I was in college or happened a year earlier. I would have been on an entirely different path, which may have turned out to be great, but I really like where I'm at now. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this. Generally, um, how did the reality as an NFL player match your expectations? You're a kid who, as you told us from the age of eight or earlier, was seeing yourself playing in the NFL, and then you get there, and now it really, really, really is business. So I'm curious to know about that. 
my freshman year in college, I, I, I started towards the end of the season. We played well. We won the ACC championship. We went to the Orange Bowl and lost. And then um, immediately after, uh, my head coach got a $10 million extension. And that was when I was like, oh, <laughs> we aren't a team. We're a business. <laughs> and that was when the light went on for me. I don't know that I would wish it any different, but that's the thing that sucks the most is that when you feel like you're a part of a team and you still have that camaraderie and love for your teammates, but also in the back of your mind, you are also thinking like, hey, I'm out for myself. I remember when um, uh, in, in Denver, I had a really good rookie season and, and my second year was was okay. Then... Uh, I was kind of scheduled to be the starter opposite Champ Bailey, the other corner, the next season. And they went and traded for Dre Bly. And I love Dre. He and I became good friends. But it was not lost on me that Dre was messing with my money and my opportunity. And that's like, that sucks. It's not fun to be in that situation. It's not fun to feel that. And and so I, I didn't consider that because I used to watch every Saturday and Sunday morning, they would do these NFL yearbooks on ESPN and they would run them like uh, back to back to back. And I would get up and watch them all the time. And those do such a great job of telling the story of football. And I believed it, <laughs> which is not to say that it's not true, but it is incomplete. Is part of that story like when the new kid comes to camp or somebody's traded that everybody tries to help them fit in, even though there's competition for the job? Is that part of the story you're saying? Oh, yeah. That's definitely part of the story. And it's um, it's not untrue because we do help each other. We do care about each other. And we are a fraternity. Look out for each other. But we're also aware that it's a business. and There's only a certain amount of money in the salary cap. And you, and you recognize, all right, if this doesn't work out, what am I going to do? If it didn't work out in Atlanta and I was out of the league after that year, I'd have been 26-year-old with um, no real experience. Like, I mean, being a football player does not qualify you to do anything short of being a bouncer, I guess. And I no real experience. Um, and I'm so far removed from college that it's like, what am I going to do? And I, I have a bank account that is much larger than most other 26-year-olds. But still, I got a whole lot of life left to live. And it's a... It's not a great situation to be in. It's not like awful, obviously, but you do feel that pressure. You're thinking about that and you're thinking about if you have kids at the time or if you have uh, family members that are dependent on you. You're like, oh, well, as much as I love this guy, as much as I want him to do well, like, like I need this. And what was uh, Ashley, your then girlfriend, now wife, what was she, what was her position now? Because I know Ashley a little bit and I know that she's not one to like let things happen. As, <laughs> as they're gonna right she's like have a plan make right. it work what was her advice to you i mean I, I don't think she gave me much advice at the time she was uh in law school at the time and she's much smarter than me uh <laughs> she's uh like i know a lot of people say that because like it seems like the like nice thing to say but like it's no offense i'll say it's pretty obviously true she's yeah, it is actually very true she <laughs> she went to the we met at maryland and she went to, to the law school at harvard well before i went to the business school up there but she uh i was more stressed than she was i think about it yeah because do you think in the back of her mind she's thinking it's okay because i'm gonna i'm gonna be a lawyer and i can carry him if i need to do you think that was part of it I don't think so, honestly. It's like, I don't, 
as she tells it now is like she knew that I was going to be successful. And that was one of the things that was attractive. You mean beyond football or in football? No, just in general. Like, okay. I don't think, she, uh-huh. I don't think she knew that I was going to be successful at football. I don't think she knew what I would do professionally, but the way that she tells it is she knew that I would be successful. So that was why she was not concerned, but I didn't know that. Now, does that say more about her or about you? In other words, does it say more about her, like the kind of man I'm going to pick? I'm not going to pick someone who's not going to be successful. Do you think it was more? Yeah, you've been hanging out with her because that's kind of the story that she tells. (laughs) Yeah, I think that... uh, I think she, those are things that she think that I think she found most attractive about me is like I was mature and focused and like, and the idea that I think the example of it is I was already looking at business schools because I had already, I was obviously going to be all in on this season. I'm going to make the season work, but I know that there's a possibility that it's not going to work and I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, now what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about, did you ever think about politics? Um, I've been told that a lot and I guess I've given it some thoughts no more than a couple of hours and I hate it. Okay. Be- <laughs> because why? It's terrible. <laughs> um, cause it seems like you, well, the, the, the money in politics is one thing. Like you're constantly fundraising. You're not actually getting to affect any change. And I guess it depends on what level of politics you're going to or whatever, but it, it f- often feels like a, a kind of, a trophy head and to be a good politician um you are kind of always looking for the next angle the next office or the next person who's going to give you some money like i don't know that that does not interest me at all coming up after a quick break dominique foxworth on his first big job after football i was getting up at like 6 30 to ride the subway to work with a bunch of other people who weren't happy about where they were going to work and player safety and the future of football i don't see why my son needs to play and if you haven't heard it yet check out our entire hidden side of sports series on any podcast app or on freakonomics.com we'll be right back Welcome back. Let's return now to our lightly edited full interview with Dominique Foxworth recorded for our Hidden Side of Sports series. So you're like a little ways into your athletic afterlife now. You're about 35 years old. Is that right, Dominique? Yep. So you've been out of football for several years now. Where do you feel you are in your athletic afterlife? Are you still kind of at the beginning? And I'm curious to know what you see, how you see it playing out. So I was president of the Players Association of NFL while I was playing. And after business school, I went to the NBA Players Association. And I I am in a, a weird state, frankly. Like, I, I don't know how to... It feels like a state of transition, which... But it feels like I shouldn't be in a state of transition, if that makes any sense. So, like, my, my whole life since I was a kid was, like... Very, I had a very clear goal, and I worked towards that goal. And I made lots of decisions that would get me closer to that goal, but get me further away from other important and interesting things, including friends and including family. And and then I was like, all right, I'm done playing. So I will be in this state of transition. Business school was like, all right, this is my transition state. And then I'll take this job at the NBA Players Association, and then I'll be back to like a steady state. 
but I didn't like it. And I left. Because why? The NBA position? Yeah, I I was the chief operating officer there. And I mean, there was a lot of things going on at the time, a lot of transition there. But being a chief operating officer was something that sounded good and paid well. And I was very proud of. But it's a lot of operating, frankly, which is like, <laughs> I, I remember living in New York and my wife was pregnant with our third child, and which she was not feeling good. And I was getting up at like 630 to ride the the subway to to work with a bunch of other people who weren't happy about where they were going to work. And, and I'd be there to like seven at night, like working, 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 working. And, and I remember being on the subway thinking like, am I happy? <laughs> like I have enough money that I don't have to be unhappy. Like all these people who are on here with me, they like, they have to go to work. And I was like, I don't have to go to work. So then I quit. And I started writing for fun, and that's what landed me at ESPN. But to be completely frank with you, like there's some focus and clarity that scarcity kind of brings to your life. And I don't say this because like I want to go back to a state when I was not sure financially. Like I like being in a comfortable financial state, but there's something to be said for the focus and clarity of, oh no, I got to do this because I got to feed my family. And when you don't have that focus and clarity, there is something a bit um, frightening, honestly, about f- always feeling like, what should I be doing with this gift? Frankly, that I that I have this gift of of um, flexibility and independence. And sometimes in the job that I have now, like I, I went to business school in part because I fancy myself as a smart person who's more than an athlete, and I wanted to get away from this. So like there's parts of me that's like embarrassed <laughs> that I like write about sports and talk about sports. But then there's parts of me that's like, this is awesome. Like it's kind of flexible. I get to do fun things. I get to be pick up my kids from school and take them to school. And and so it, it just depends on the day where I sometimes I'm like, I should be chasing like some big professional glory and I'm wasting time or some days I'm like, I'm doing just exactly what I should be doing. Or I like, well, I should be spending more time with my kids and my wife because I have this flexibility. So when you have that scarcity to focus your thought there, it's very clear what you should be doing. And I think that that's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to happen to somebody at this age. It feels like more of a midlife thing. And Uh, For athletes, it's a unique thing. Successful athletes is a unique thing that in your 20s or 30s, you're like, now what? Now, everything you said just makes sense to me, but I'm also curious if there's one more element that plays into that, which is that sports is maybe singularly thrilling to do. Um, And I say maybe, you know, if you play music at a high level, I mean, it's probably silly to say that sports are the only one, but because of the the nature of what it is and the competition, it's thrilling. I mean, look how thrilled people are to watch it. And you guys are the ones who are doing it. And I just wonder if part of what's, you know, contributing to your sort of malaise is just the the possibility that that thrill is irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a reasonable thing to think, but it doesn't feel like that to me. Like, I don't feel like I'm missing that thrill. Like, it's not something that I feel like I I want. 
I think the 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 feeling of of uncertainty is the feeling that I have more than anything. It's not that like, oh, my life is boring. It's like, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the best thing I can with this fortunate situation that I'm in? And I think like it's where it is connected to sports in some way, but also like exacerbates it, I think is a feeling of loneliness, honestly, which, and it's not like I have three kids and my wife and I'm not like alone, obviously. And I love them and I have fun with them and, but throughout my life, I have been almost myopically focused on a goal, which being focused on that goal, like gave me purpose. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher the, the um, Nietzsche quote, but it's something to the effect of uh, when a man has a why he can bear almost any how and like, I don't drink now. I never drank in my life. I never smoked weed. Like I was singularly focused on doing everything. Every decision I made was like, all right, I'm going to get close to this goal. And I, I, my, the people who I was close with in high school, like those aren't my friends anymore. People I was close with in college, like not really my friends anymore. And then at 35, I'm in DC where my wife has, um, a bunch of family and friends, friends that she's been close with since they were in the second grade. And like, and I'm like, eh, I don't really have that. And like, I was making these choices, which I thought were choices to get me what you wanted. Right. And, and I was in a, there were choices that I was making that I was unaware that I was making. Like, I didn't realize at the time that I was foregoing like lasting, long lasting relationships. <laughs> I think lots of athletes do the opposite and bring their friends and family along with them. And then they are making a decision and there are a whole nother whole mess of problems that you get from that. So <laughs> there is no right way to do it. And I, I am very happy with where I'm in my life. And, and while you're a professional athlete, you walk around with this um, skepticism, frankly, of all new people in your life. So even if there were like, the potential of some great friendships. Like I wasn't open to them. I'd go to these places, people like, Oh, you're a football player. And I'd pretend and be nice to them because that's what you do. And they'd pretend or whatever. It'd be into me because that's what you do. And then you move on. And, and then you're 35 and you're like, Hey, you haven't talked to your best friend from high school in 10 years or, or something like that. So, I, I mean, I think that, I certainly don't like feel sad or anything, but these are things that I am becoming more aware of now. And I think I said to my wife a couple of days ago that I feel like I'm in a, like a perpetual state of transition, which is interesting and uncomfortable at the same time. What are some of the, uh, the other things you've tried? Um, you mentioned the NBA players association job. What are some other things that you tried that you thought would make you excited or happy and didn't? Um, so it's not that they didn't, it's that they, that they don't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so like, uh, like I mentioned, it's, it's no matter. And I'm starting to kind of understand that. Um, and this goes back to the scarcity point where if there is something there to make the decision for you, it's, it feels somewhat easier, but I imagine that, that everyone can relate to this, that, when you're at work, sometimes you're like, man, I really wish I was with my kids or I really wish I was partying. Or when you are with your family, you're like, man, it, particularly if you like your job, you kind of want to be at work. Or 
Um, you might want to go on a guy's trip or you might want to go on a romantic vacation with your wife. Like there's so many things that you want to do and, but there are things for so many people that they have to do, you know? So when I'm in this position where it's like, all right, I want to do this. And then I'm doing it. I'm like, but I kind of want to do some of that. And then it's <laughs> and like it even breaks down into professional where it's like, all right, I want to like just pro- chase professional glory. I want to be like work my way up to the top of some company. And like, I think I'm capable of doing that. Like, I feel like I have the intelligence or charisma and and pedigree academically to get in those positions. But that requires you to like not be home a lot. And like I, there's part of me that wants that, but then there's part of me that's like, I want my kids to look back and be like, Hey, my dad picked me up from school a couple of days a week. I don't know. So this ambivalence, you never had any of this though, when you were chasing the NFL dream, did you? No, it's, this is it's brand, this is brand new. Like it was quite clear to me that there were two things. Like I need to get paid and we need to win and anything that was not in line with that. I was like, all right, it's obviously I don't need to do this. And I, I think maybe I was more extreme version of it than uh, a lot of people, like to the to point that like I don't drink and stuff. Like I, I don't have like some religious thing against drinking. I just never have. It is, and I, I didn't when I was in high school when probably a lot of people start because I was like, no, that's going to make me a worse football player. One of my best friends in high school actually sold drugs and got a little bit of a, time for it and when he was selling and occasionally smoking i was like nah i'm a football player like even our presidents over the the years have experimented with marijuana like it feels like for me and some even (laughs) cocaine for me it was like no there's one thing to do and now i'm at this point where it's like i don't really know how to have fun i don't really have like super close friends and i don't really know what to do with my life but i'm pretty happy still Hmm. So it sounds um, to me, at least, that you built an identity that was, you know, focused, really strongly focused on on sport, on football. Right. But there are a million parts of what identity means. It means, you know, who you know and what you do with them and what you put in your body and so on. And, and that now you still have the identity, but you don't have the thing that you, you know, built it for. I mean, it's got to be a little baffling in a way, like you are the person you made and to succeed and then you did succeed. And now it's like, what, what next? Yeah. I mean, I think most people's journeys are so much longer that when they do succeed, they like die a few years after <laughs> or something, you know, that's your problem. That's your problem here. Yeah. I mean, that's what's always attracted me about the idea of the afterlife of an athlete is it's unnatural. Yeah. You know, most people like they pursue something for their whole life or it's not so, you know, specific that they basically are told to stop doing it when they're 35 because, right. you know, they're too slow or whatnot. <laughs> yeah. And yet, like, you can't like ask, like, you got a lot of money in the bank. You can't ask people to feel sorry for you on that front, plainly. No, I'm certainly like this, this, to be clear, like this conversation is not at all about me wanting sympathy or feeling sorry like that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I didn't, I didn't mean to imply. Yeah, no, there, there's nobody that I want to trade places with, but I just, I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that. Well, but you have a serious case of grass is greenerism, it sounds like. (laughs) It feels that way, right? To the point that you made about the, I am the person that I I made, one of my classes 
in business school. One of the the prof- like there was it was surprising. I, I went to business school before um, after I finished playing. I went to business school because I was like, all right, now I'm gonna keep competing. Like I'll go to the best business school and I'm gonna turn this 27 into 200. And then I got there, and surprisingly, as I'm sure Harvard has like a bad stereotype or a bad <laughs> reputation for like creating money hungry like people with low ethics i'm sure there are plenty of them coming out but i was surprised with like how much mushy soft classes that we had that was about um our feelings and integrity and all that stuff and i do remember one of the professors said that it wasn't to me directly it was just to the class but it felt like he was talking to me directly and i didn't really like this professor necessarily so i hate to give him credit but he said something to the effect of the operating system that you use to to get here may not be the operating system that you need going forward. And like that resonated with me because like I feel like that's definitely true for me. But I don't know. They don't just like release um updates for humans. So like <laughs> modifying my operating system is 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 a slower, more challenging process. Right. What was the professor's name? Uh I don't remember. Okay. I didn't like him because the first day he said to me, like, obviously I was the football player there and that was part of my identity. He sized me up and was like, aren't you kind of small for a football player? <laughs> I was like, I will whoop your ass in this classroom. <laughs> but uh, he was actually a pretty good professor, though. Mm-hmm. All right. So let me ask you this. Um, you are a scholar, at least an amateur scholar of the civil rights movement. Right. Um, can you just talk for a second about the relationship between the civil rights movement per se and sports areas where there's overlap, maybe where one movement is way ahead or behind of the other. And, and I'm certainly, you know, got in the back of my mind, the anthem uh, protests that uh, are a big piece of this conversation right now. I'm curious to know what you have to say about that. Yeah. um, There's something like, at least in America, there is something black about professional athleticism like the uh, the players are largely black and uh, particularly in the big two sports a lot of um the culture that seeps out of the game into our pop culture come from black players and there's a lot of people who want to separate race from sports and they they say they want to kind of go back to how it was and when race and sports were separate, but it never was like it was, it always, it always has been intertwined. Like race is, is probably the most, particularly in America, it's like the most defining characteristic of our country is like how we have dealt with race and it is always involved in everything. And obviously there were um, like the 60s, obviously no one can say that race and sports weren't connected, but I think people point to like the periods after that from the 70s, 80s to the 90s, and they would say that those were times when race and politics and social issues were not in sports. But I still think they were because the players were still dealing with it, whether the media was putting attention on it or whether people were willing to address it or talk about it. Like it was a thing that was always there. So that frustrates me. So I don't, I don't necessarily feel like, while I, I do accept that we're in a state now as a country where it is unavoidable, the intersection, 
I don't feel like it ever went away. Like, it's not a new intersection. It's just we happen to be on that corner altogether at once. It's funny you say that because the thing that struck me most about when Colin Kaepernick first decided to um, protest uh, police violence by sitting and then kneeling during the anthem, the thing that struck me is it felt so mild compared to some past protest moves like, you know, 1968 Olympics. I mean, that, right. that was a big deal. Right. And then it also struck me, the response also struck me as so overwrought that, again, it felt like pre-60s in a way. Um, like, didn't we, like, haven't we done this? And shouldn't the conversation be way ahead of this? But maybe that's because it is at the end of the day all about just race and not even race in sports, race in right. politics, et cetera. Do you think that's what it's really about then? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not about uh, the issues. It's not about the posture you take when you are, um, when the national anthem is being played. Like it's something that I, um, as a father, I've come to kind of recognize that adults aren't very different from from children, they just adults <laughs> learn how to justify and how to kind of validate their actions and decisions. Whereas if my son does something ridiculous and I ask him why, like he looks at me like I'm crazy, like how do you ask me why? Or <laughs> or or he'll just say like I, I took some a cookie and like why? I wanted a cookie. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. Like, uh -huh. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I think that People, to a certain degree, even if it is subconscious, they do what feels right or what makes them happy or what makes them feel good. And then they're like, all right, now let me concoct this post hoc justification, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And I think that's what's happening. And I mean, we see it with the with the anthem stuff. It's like, all right, sitting down during the anthem is a problem. Kneeling, and then you move from there to kneeling. So kneeling's then a problem. Raised fist is a problem, and now we see that staying in the locker room is a problem. Let's just be honest about it. Like You don't like these people um, making any statement, and it makes you uncomfortable, and you don't like it, so you're not going to like it no matter how they get it across. Like there's no, And that's the one of the things that's been most frustrating about this is they're like, no, I understand, but this is the wrong time or this is the wrong way. Like, no, there is no right time. There's no right way. You should be more like Martin Luther King. Like Martin Luther King was assassinated and large majority of white society was not happy with him um, advocating for advanced rights. Like, I don't know. It just feels like there's just no matter what, there are people and it, it's it's a trap that I think we often get caught in and not just in this case, but just in general, where it's like, all right, we're going to try to satisfy everybody or we're going to try to satisfy this group. Like you, some people don't want to be satisfied. They want to be angry. Let them be angry. If you were still playing in the NFL uh, and first day of yes. the season happens, <laughs> what do you do during the anthem? I mean, it's uh, I think at this point, I you I probably stand up. Because there's not much, and I mean it's easier, easy to say now. I don't, I don't know. So that's I'd like to say that I would be in solidarity with um, those guys, and I would have the courage to expose myself to the hate that they're receiving. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's easy to say now from the sidelines. 
I'm just going to ask one last question if I can. Sure. Uh, Two-part question. Um, number one, um, you played professional and college and high school football, so you can't not think about um, long-term brain damage since that's a, a, a big piece of all conversations about football these days. So I'm curious to know um, whether you feel a little bit like you're living with a time bomb in your head and uh, related to that. Uh, I'm curious to know what happens uh, if and when your son wants to play football. So I'll take the second one first. So slightly easier. It's like I, um, he's only five now and I say no. I mean, it's not a problem that we're actually facing at this point, but I would say no. And I, I mean, I, so if he comes to you and says, Hey dad, I know, you know, before I was born, you were, you know, amazing NFL player, da da da, great career, et cetera. What do you mean? No. What's that? What's, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I mean, I, I think the the research it wasn't there. I I suspect my parents would not have let me play when I was that age if there was um, information available. And like it, it's it's not even clear information, but what is clear is that it it does put you at higher risk. Like my son doesn't need those things. Like the best case scenario is that you play professional football and you make a lot of money. Like I I wasn't. I was far from poor growing up, like middle class, but like I went to Baltimore County public schools. I I was like, that's, that's not my son's experience. I didn't have access to the things that he'll have access to. So like, I, I frankly think that he is starting in a much better place than I am. So he should do much better than, than banging his head into other people's head for money. Like it seems like a step back to me, honestly. And, and so, uh, kind of on a macro scale, does that mean that as football goes forward, and I guess if football goes forward, um, which obviously in the short term it will, but in the long term it's a question, does that mean that the only people that play it are going to be, you know, the people who need to play it to try to make the money that they can't make otherwise? It kind of feels like outside of the quarterback position, it's it's already gravitated to that, like uh, both prior to, to now. But, I mean, you got guys, you know, the San Francisco 49ers, for instance, they have a few guys, they've had a lot, there have been a lot in the league, who went to Stanford. So these are football players that go to Stanford, they get a Stanford degree. There's a lot of ways they can now make a living. So there's obviously more about the appeal of playing at that level than just making the money, yeah? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, football players, athletes are still heroes in our society, and it's something that people, particularly young boys, will aspire to. I understand that. But I do think that, the danger is something that's going to push people away from it in a way that it drew people to it in the past. So I, 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 I mean, it's not football's not by any stretch dead, and there is still hope that they could find ways to modify the game or improve equipment or whatever and make it safer. But until they do, like I don't see why yeah. my son needs to play. But I don't judge anybody else. Your son can do what you mm-hmm. want your son to do. That's just <laughs> not for my son. And then what about you? Do you worry about your brain? Does your wife worry about your brain? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I do. Uh, it's it's something that I think lots of players um, talk about and think about. And every time there is like, it could just be like general aging. Like you don't know where your keys are. Like it's like you're living a horror movie, honestly, where it's like this thing lurking in the background that like you you hear noises, but you don't necessarily know if that's like just a regular noise or if that is a a, a monster and that's like a, what i analogize it to where it's like all right i 
can't find my keys. Like that to me feels like, oh, is this a signal or is this just something, whatever? And so, I mean, it's, it's scary. And I think that what is most frightening is right now I would do it all over because of what it's done for me and my family. And I think most players would agree with that, except for the ones who killed themselves. Like, I I have been sad before, obviously, but I don't know that darkness. Like, I, I don't know. I've never, ever in my life, like, gave any realistic consideration to ending my own life and trying to, and I mean, I invite you or anybody else to, like, try to wrap your head around how sad, like, depressed, how dark you must feel to see death as as relief as a way out. And I imagine if I were ever to feel that way or for people who do feel that way, they don't say like, I would go back and do it all over again. I would imagine in that moment, they would give up all the fame, all the money, all the success, all the women or whatever else that all the trappings of this to not be in a place where you feel like the only exit is to end your life. So like, that's very dark and very difficult to deal with, but I I've never been there. I hope never to get there, but until then, like I feel like I'm happy with the decisions that I've made and I will continue to live as happy and productive a life as I can. Well, on that note, let me just thank you for a really great conversation and wish you and your family um, all the best. And I hope you find uh, the greenest pasture possible. <laughs> <laughs> and then find a greener one. <laughs> that was Dominique Foxworth on Twitter. He's at Foxworth24. Hope you enjoyed this full conversation. He appears throughout our Hidden Side of Sports series, including episode numbers 349, 351, and 365. Thanks again to him, and thanks to you for listening. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. Our Hidden Side of Sports series was produced by Anders Kelto and Derek John, with lots of help from Harry Huggins, Allison Craiglow, and Alvin Melleth. We also had help from Rebecca Douglas and Nellie Osborne, and our staff also includes Greg Rippon and Zach Lipinski. The music you hear throughout our episodes was composed by Luis Guerra. Our show can also be heard on NPR stations across the country. Check your local station for the schedule. Also on SiriusXM, Spotify, even your better airlines. Thanks for listening. Stitcher. 